Well, good morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord. Pastor Jason, thank you for that music. Ah, good stuff, good stuff. Go ahead and open your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. We're going to cover that entire chapter this morning, Lord willing. And we'll actually start in chapter 12, verse 25, and cover that. And if you would, please stand with me. Although we're going to cover the entire chapter of Acts, we'll only read chapter 12, verse 25, through verse 3 of chapter 13. And then we'll work our way through the rest of the chapter as the morning progresses. God's Word says this to us this morning in chapter 12, beginning in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of, the, of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's pray. Father, we would ask right now that you would take your word and begin to plant it deep within our hearts. Father, may you bless the preaching of your word. Help us to do what it is that you have required of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you enjoy going to the uh, car mechanic? You may enjoy that process. Um, man, I have had the uh, unfortunate opportunity over the last month or so to go to the mechanic a couple of different times and uh, went just this week. I had a tire on my car that, you know, I'd blow it up and then it would go down after like a week and a half or so, but it got to the point where it was, I'd fill it up and then it'd be down the next morning. So, you know, it's making me late work, that kind of thing. So I said, you know, I'll decide to take it in, get it looked at. And, you know, you take it in, they give you a call later and... Uh, they say, there's a nail in the tire. Which, and you know what the next thing they say after that, right? What are, who, who's ever had this experience? You know what the next thing they say after that? They can't fix it. They, why can you never fix a nail in a tire? You know, but they can't, for some reason, at least when I run over nails, they can never patch the tire. It is all, I mean, always the nail is too close to the tire wall. Every time. And almost when she calls me and tells me it's too close, I was like, I, I already know, I knew you were going to say that. Um, because that's what you always tell me. Um, but then, so, they, so, you know, it goes basically from a $20 fix to a you know, $20 or $30 fix to like an $89 fix. $89 fix for the one tire. If I buy another tire, because I have another tire that needs, you know, the, the treads are underneath spec, so they'll give me a deal on both these tires. Um, so, you know, end up spending like $180, $190, and I thought I was going to get out of there for maybe $20 or $30. Bucks. Um, I, I thought, you know, I should have taken that car to my, my, my regular mechanic, um, but he's quite difficult to get into. About 22 years ago or so, when I first moved up to Cincinnati, I didn't know anybody, I didn't, you know, I didn't I'm familiar with the area, and uh, some guys that I worked with uh, you know, had some car problems, and literally everybody that I worked with went to the same mechanic, every single one of them, and they said, you've got to go to this mechanic, he is trustworthy, he will not rip you off, he takes care of you, he'll tell you exactly what you need to have done your car and nothing extra. And so I went, 
And over the years, he, he has legitimately saved me thousands upon thousands of dollars. I go in there from time to time for different things, and uh, he'll say, look, we, we can address this problem a couple of different ways, really two ways. We can do the expensive fix or the economical fix. Uh, the economical fix is, would be a longer-lasting fix and a better fix. Um, so which one, do you, which one do you want? And um, so for several, you know, this happened to me several times. And I have since recommended this mechanic to several of my friends, several family members, and even folks in this church. And um, I know of at least three families in the church that go to this mechanic now. All of my extended family goes to this mechanic, and I've been using him for the past 20 years. But he's built a reputation not on marketing, but really simply by word of mouth. As a matter of fact, um, he's never done any marketing. And if you're trying to find where his, this guy's shop is, you have to go into an industrial park, go down a dead-end cul-de-sac street, and it's just a building. And I tried to remember yesterday when I was, trying, when I was thinking of this illustration, I don't even think he has the name, of the bil- name on the building. It's just literally just a building. It's just there. You would not know that it's a car mechanic unless you, just, unless you could just see all the cars that were around this, this shop. But he has grown that business to the point that if you want to take a car there, you need to call in advance because he's about, at least past year or so, he's had about a five or six day wait to get, in, get into him. Um, but all of that's happened because obviously he's a good mechanic, he's trustworthy, but by word of mouth, word is spread about the job that he does, that he is trustworthy, that he can be counted on, he's going to fix your car as he says he would, if he can't. Um, I, I mean, I've taken him in, had the car fixed, and, and I thought it was fixed, took it back to him, he's like, Oh, no, I'll fix it for free. I thought it was this. No problem. Like, you don't charge extra. But by word of mouth is how his business has been grown over the years. Over the past several months, Pastor Greg has been talking about kingdom building. We've seen that in the Old Testament. And that kingdom building operates, operates much the same way by word of mouth. The sharing of the gospel. It does more than just influence behavior. Rather, it expands the kingdom of God and it changes lives. And Lord willing, we'll see that this morning as we come into Acts chapter 13. Now, Acts chapter 13 is an interesting chapter in the book of Acts because it acts as, though it acts as a hinge uh, in the book. There are a couple of things that we are going to begin to see as we move through the rest of Acts that change that are different than the first 12 chapters of Acts. Uh, the, the, the first thing that, that we're going to see is that in, in the first 12 chapters, we saw that the gospel went forward primarily by way of persecution. So persecution would come, people would flee, and then they would take the gospel with them. Beginning in chapter 13, what we see is it doesn't go by way of persecution, but by willing proclamation. People go and take the gospel with them and they begin to proclaim it. The second thing that we'll notice as we get into chapter 13 and move forward in the rest of the book of Acts is the character, the main character, if you will, changes. In the earlier chapter of Acts, you remember that the, uh, Luke, who's the author of Acts, follows Peter. Remember you see Peter uh, at Pentecost, Peter at Solomon's portico, uh, Peter's vision, his interaction with Cornelius, he's imprisoned, and just kind of follows what he's doing. As we get into chapter 13, Peter falls to the background and Paul now comes to the foreground. And the book of Acts traces his missionary journeys. We're going to begin to see that the gospel advances around the globe, that the church of Christ might be made up of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Now, chapters 13 and 14, they actually record all of Paul's first missionary journey. Now, we're not going to look at chapter 14 this morning. We will cover the first half of his missionary journey. We're just going to look at chapter 13. But Lord willing, what we're going to see is a model for spirit-led 
going and gospel telling churches and individuals. We'll see a spirit-led church demonstrate compassion in the giving of their gifts and in the giving of their gifts of two gifted teachers to go and share the gospel. We're going to see Paul as he adapts to different situations, how he adapts when he preaches to the, to the Jews or the Gentiles, the religious or the irreligious, to crowds or individuals. So Paul's first missionary journey, like the others, is concerned with the advancement of the gospel. The first thing to notice about this journey and this text is that gospel advancement is spirit-led and church-sent. Gospel advancement is spirit-led and church-sent. The church of Antioch was by all accounts a healthy church, and we know this for a couple of reasons. First, we know from chapter 11 that after Stephen was stoned to death, the people left Jerusalem there. They were being persecuted, so they left, they fled, and many of them ended up in Antioch. And chapter 11 tells us that those people began telling others about Jesus. We could say that, that Jesus, the gospel spread by word of mouth. And many believed. And when the church in Jerusalem heard about all of these new Christians that were in Antioch, they went ahead and sent Barnabas down there. And they said, Barnabas, go down there and take a look and see what's going on. He goes down there and he organizes that church in Antioch. He gets there and the scriptures continue to tell us that the church continues to grow. The disciples are continuing to be built up in the faith. So this church is experiencing rapid growth. Barnabas realizes he can't handle it all himself, so he goes and he finds Paul. And he says, Paul, you need to come with me, join with me at the church at Antioch. Help me pastor this church. Help me to disciple and equip these people. And so that's exactly what happens. They, they, they come and they, uh, they, they begin discipling. They begin teaching. And as they do, they, they realize that, uh, uh, that they are receiving biblical training, gospel training. They're being instructed in the things of God. But this church wasn't just concerned with their own growth. We also know from chapter 11 that when they heard about a famine that was particularly ravishing Judea, that the church there took up a collection, chapter 11 says, according to their ability. So all of the members of the church there in Antioch begin giving as much as they can in relief of this famine that was coming on this land. And so certainly they were praying about the famine, but then they were also doing something about it as well. And they send Paul and Barnabas to take these gifts in order to relieve that pain that has been caused as a result of that famine. And in verse 12, verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 25, verse 12, which is what we just read, it's Paul and Barnabas returning from delivering that famine relief money. Third, we know this healthy church that due to the equipping that was taking place, at least three other leaders was raised up in this church within a year's time. We see them mentioned in the first couple of verses of chapter 13. But even beyond that, this church was markedly different than the group of people of which they were among, they were around them. Antioch was literally a divided city. Uh, it had a wall that was in the, in the city, and the purpose of this wall in the middle of the city was to keep the Syrians and the Greeks separated from one another. Apparently they didn't like each other, so they put this wall there so they couldn't you know, kill each other, I guess. I don't know. But they wall, potentially, to keep them apart. Um, a couple scholars said there was at least... 18 different ethnicities that were residing inside the city. And of course, each ethnicity was in their own area, stayed within their own group. But among all of these different 
people groups in this diverse city of 500,000 people, there are a group of people who are not known for their ethnicity, but rather they are known for their identity. They are known not as Greek, not as Jew, but they're known as Christians. For it's in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. No longer were they identified as, as, as what their ethnic makeup was, but who they followed, who they resembled. They were like their Christ, walking as Christ walked. And Christ has united them, and he tore down racial and ethnic barriers. And so this church in Antioch is a diverse church, but not only that, they had diverse leaders, a diverse group of men leading them. We read of them again in the first couple of verses of chapter 13. There were two Jews, Paul and Barnabas, two Africans, Lucius from North Africa, and Simeon, who most believe was a dark-skinned African. And then you have Manaean. And out of the five, this is the one that I find most interesting. Uh, he was a lifelong friend, it says, of the Herod of Tetrarch. Now here is a man who is a leader in the church of Antioch, and he is a lifelong friend of the man who imprisoned John the Baptist and then beheaded John the Baptist. And then, if you remember, he also allowed his soldiers to beat and mock Jesus. And these two men are lifelong friends. We, we look at this and we begin to see that we have men from different backgrounds, different childhoods, different walks of life. And they have come to believe in Christ. And Christ has taken this, these different men and he has united them. And now he has purposed them together to advance the kingdom of God. So now they've been united in Christ and the rest of these things have kind of fallen away. It's a beautiful picture of how Christ, how we're united in Christ. And everything's going well, right, in this church in Antioch. People are getting saved. The church is getting bigger. People are being grown up in the faith. You've got leaders. They're giving money to these people that are suffering. We, I mean, the way that it's growing, the way that things are growing, I mean, it might have been, I don't know this, it might have been the first mega church, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the vibe that you get when you learn about this church in Antioch. And so temptation may have been to say, hey, look, we, we got things pretty well. We're doing pretty well here. What are we, we, we done? I mean, big building, lots of people. We're diverse, you know? Everybody wants to be diverse, you know? And, um, I mean, they, they could begin to rely on their own strength, begin to trust in their own wisdom. But they continue to seek after God. The scriptures there say that they were worshiping and fasting. Now, think about that. They are still seeking after Jesus. They still see Jesus as their treasure. They, they still want to worship King Jesus. And they're fasting as an expression that we need more of God. We need more of Christ. They're, they're worshiping and they're, they're fasting in the midst of this growth and all that's, that's going on. And it's in that situation, the Scripture says, that the Holy Spirit spoke. The Spirit is clear. He wants Paul and Barnabas set apart. There was nothing inferior about these other three men, nothing at all, as far as we know. He could have chosen any of them, but the Spirit yet chose Paul and Barnabas. And the church confirms that call by praying and fasting and commissions them for missionary service. And I do think that it is the church, not just a leader here, that, that send them and commissions them along with the Spirit. And the reason I, I think this is probably the case is that the first is the church is mentioned in verse 1, and then 2, upon their return in chapter 14, they come back from the missionary journey, and they report back to the church what all has happened. And that would seem to make sense if it was the church that sent them. 
And it's interesting that when the Spirit comes, he doesn't just speak to Barnabas. He doesn't just speak to Paul. But rather, he speaks to these five men, all of them together. And I'm sure this created in them a humble sense of affirmation that the Spirit really had called them. Did, did, I, did I really hear that call right? Oh, no, I heard that call right. These other men heard it with me. And the church prayed and fasted, and they, too, sent us on our way. I also think that maybe when hard times came to them, and we'll read about some of those today, when hard times came, one of the things they could look back to is say, you know, the Spirit called us, and the church sent us. And what God has called us to, what the church has prayed for us about, we can persevere in this and endure the task at hand. But the same is true for us, isn't it? I mean, we've, each one of us, we, we, know, we know that we've been called and commissioned to go make disciples. We, we may have not received a calling the same way that Paul and Barnabas did. We may not have had the same commissioning service that they had. But we know we've been called and commissioned in the sense that we are to tell others about Jesus. Jesus has commanded us to do this. And as believers, we've been equipped by the Spirit to do this. We, we know this. I think each one of us that have been in church for any amount of time, we're going to agree with that. We, we know it. The question then becomes, will we do this? Will we tell others? That brings us to our second point. Gospel advancement requires going and telling. Gospel advancement requires going and telling. I'm going to read verses 4 through 16. 4, 4 through 16. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil! You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day when they went into the synagogue and sat down, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if any of you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Let me tell you, Paul had a message of encouragement for the people. It wasn't the message of encouragement they thought they were going to hear. I guarantee you that. The church 
had a go-and-tell philosophy to ministry. Go-and-tell. There's very little come and see. I mean, there was some of that. We read some of that in the New Testament, some of that in Acts. But it was go-and-tell. The early church is about going and telling. Today's church in the United States, and I'm most familiar with the church in the United States, um, we, we have a huge, enormous come and see mentality. Come and see. Come and see. Program. Look at, look, look at this show we're putting on. This event. Come and see. Come and see. Why do we do that? I, mean, I don't know. One, one reason maybe is it's safe. Safe. We like safety. You know, there's like 150 of us here, right? You get a non-believer in here. We got that dude outnumbered 150 to 1. Right? I mean, he doesn't be asking a question that's going to stump us, right? Where's Pastor Greg? He got a question here? You got we, we, There's safety there. It's when we go out there and we, we go and we tell and it's, it's, we're, we're sitting across from somebody. We're having a conversation with that person and it's just you and them or maybe you and a, a, a couple of people. There's, there's, we, we feel as though there's not as much safety there. It's just you and them. Can I tell you, it's not just you and them. It's you and the Spirit in them, and that Spirit is stronger and safer than 150 of us. You have the Spirit living in you, the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead in you, giving you the ability to speak words, gospel truth to a dead soul that he might come to life. You have that ability to speak the gospel. Let God do what he does. Let him do it. Don't misunderstand. We, we should be attractive, Right? Um, some of us need to be a little more attractive, you know. But, you know what I'm saying? We need, our holiness needs to be our, what attracts people. Our, the, how we live ought to be different. Like, yeah, why, look at him. He's, there's a holiness about him. There's a difference about him. He's a, he, he doesn't look like what I would expect, but he looks like a Christian. So we need to act our, ask ourselves, practically speaking, are we going and telling? Are we more come and see? Individually, what does that look like in our own lives? See, Jesus took the twelve, he paired them up, and he said, Go and tell. Jesus took the 72 disciples, remember those? He paired them up and he said, Go and tell. Jesus says he's involved in ministry, is going and telling. We are told, Go and and tell. Make disciples. We can preach. We can have a dynamic children's ministry. We, we can do all these kinds of things, good things. But the big question is, are we willing to go? If God calls, are you willing? Are you willing to go and tell your neighbor? I mean, ask yourself, am, am I willing to go? What is your heart's leaning there? So we not only pray, search me, O God, try me and know my heart and lead me in the way everlasting, but we also pray, Lord, here am I. Send me. That's the heart that we all need. And I know as I'm saying this, 
the, you know, kind of how it sounds. It's like, we just got to muster this thing up. We, our own strength. We just, need to, we just need to do it. I know I'm supposed to do it. That's not the case. Again, I remind you, brothers and sisters, God gives us the power by the way of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this mission. Paul and Barnabas, they, they leave Antioch and they sail to the island of Cyprus. And when they get there, they, they go to the synagogues, which was their custom, and they begin teaching. And they tell them about Jesus the Messiah and that he's been crucified. And we also learn here that John has also went with them. And so they end up on the eastern side of this island, Cyprus, and they begin working the island. It's 90 miles wide, working the thing until they get into the, to the west part of the island. And when they get there, they come to a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus and the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who was the governor of that island. Now, Sergius Paulus, he was open-minded. He was curious. He says to Paul and Barnabas, you know, tell me about what it is that you're talking to the others about. The magician here, his advisor, he's really more of a sorcerer, is opposed to them. Now, this isn't someone who looks at a crystal ball and does palm reading, um, okay, but, but we, we need to try to understand what this relationship is. Like, when you read this and you're like, okay, why is a governor like consulting a magician? Like, what, what is up with that? Like, for most of us, like, it's going to be like, what, what, what is going on there? When we come across something in a text that doesn't make sense to us. We can do a couple of things. One of those things that we can do is we can read the context. Does, does the text itself give us any clue or indication about what may be going on here, why these two may be connected? If that isn't there, then maybe if not explicitly written out in the text, maybe we, could, we can go to uh, what is the cultural context at the time? And that's what's helpful in understanding this relationship, is understanding the cultural context and how this governor and this magician can be together. Remember that this is a pagan culture. Greco-Roman culture was extremely involved and believed in the supernatural. They believed in many gods, many spirits, polytheistic societies, spiritual forces. They believed in Greek gods like Apollos and Zeus. And if you were someone like a magician who could somehow reach over into the other world, tap into the other side, and in some kind of way demonstrate that you could reach into that spirit world and bring some kind of knowledge back you were viewed as an asset, as an advisor that could help um, people make decisions, particularly in this man's case, make decisions about what was going on on this island. So he, he's someone important with authority. Now there's an important principle that we see being played out here, and, and really that is you're, when you go and you tell people, you're going to run into two groups of people, right? You're going to run into the person that's open and curious, and you're going to run into person that's, that, that's closed-minded, completely disinterested, totally and completely. Some people are going to believe that you're bigoted. Some people tell you you're bigoted. They're going to say they don't believe the Bible, they don't believe in God, they're they don't want to hear it. Go ahead. Don't bother me with this. But there will be others who are open to what it is that you have to say. And those people sometimes will even have somebody that is in their other ear telling them, you don't want to, you don't want to believe? That, that's a myth. That's for weak people. It's a crutch. Christianity is a crutch. Religion is for those who can't do it on their own. But Bar-Jesus, he stood against them. And the scriptures tell us that he was blinded. And look again at verse 14. Great verse. Verse 14. Then the proconsul believed. And then notice how these two things are connected. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God's spirit is stronger than the spirits of the world, right? But look at those two things. When he saw what had occurred... He was astonished at the Lord's teaching. So you got these two, these two little 
seeing this miracle that occurred, teaching combined belief. That's just what we see here. Maybe one of the reasons we don't experience more of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives is because we're not out there with the gospel. Because when you look through the book of Acts, and, and if you've read through the book of Acts, many of us have, or if you, I, I encourage you to do that in the next couple of weeks before we get into the, to the next passage. What you're going to find in, in the book of Acts, the pattern is, is they're outgoing and telling, and as they're going and telling, that's when these miracles happen. When now they're sharing the gospel. So it may be, it's a possibility that one of the reasons that we're not seeing the Spirit's power in more dramatic ways is because we're saying, come and see, come and see, rather than going and telling. Because when we're out there, when we're in the trenches, when we're, when we're, we're talking with people, we're influenced by the world and want to have nothing to do with the gospel, we are going to need the Spirit of God to actually do a work that only He can do, a miraculous work that only He can get credit for. When there's that guy that everybody would agree, he is too far gone to believe. This is the guy that, 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 that he's done things that none of us have ever done before. He said things that none of us have ever said before. He's gone places that none of us have ever gone before. He, he smokes things that none of us have ever smoked before. He's, he, 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 he's got tattoos all over. Whatever it is. When, when you go to that kind of person and you begin to speak to them the gospel and that person believes, you can say that is a miraculous work of God. Only God can get credit for that. Only God can change that man's heart. God does a miraculous work here. God silences this guy, and Sergius Paulus believes. But this occurs because they obey the Spirit of God and go and tell. So they, they leave Cyprus and they sail north to Perga, and from there they go to Antioch in Pisidia. So they're in this, they're at this island, they sail across the sea, they end up in Port City, they end up in Perga, which is about 10 miles inland, and then from Perga is when they go to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, and this is a province in Galatia. It's not the same Antioch from which they departed. Um, and so when we read the book of Galatians, this would have been one of the churches there that would have received that letter. But to make it from Perga to Antioch and Pisidia, they would have had to cross the Tarsus Mountains. And we don't read about this in the text, but when um, I look some of these things up and look at pictures of these mountains, these are beautiful mountains. Um, they go up about 12,000 feet. They're all snow-covered. Um, and they are rocky, and it's hard ground. Um, it, it, this was, uh, these mountains were known to have uh, bandits in them. It wasn't the safest place to be. There wasn't anybody out there, and so you, know, you could easily rob someone, take advantage of someone, and there was no way to kind of enforce common law out there. Um, and so they were going to have to trek, go about 110, 120 miles from Perga into Antioch and Pisidia in order to make it there. What we do know is that John leaves them. The text tells us that John leaves them. We don't know exactly why John leaves them. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas why that may have happened. Um, we'll look at that later in a couple messages when, we, we, when John tries to reconnect with them. But what we do know is there was difficulty coming. And John leaves them. And Paul and Barnabas continue on. They're, they're not deterred. And, and, and what we probably need to understand is, is there will be times when... We are engaged in this going and telling that things will get rough. We can bail. Or we can stay the course. And what we're going to see is staying the course pays dividends. 
So anyway, they, they arrive in the city, this Antioch and Pisidia, and Paul goes into uh, the synagogue. And during the service, they ask him, hey, man, you got anything you want to say? No, we don't do this today, all right? I mean, if a wizard come in, we wouldn't say, hey, you got anything for us today? We, we don't want to do that. But in there, again, going back to cultural context, this was something that was relatively common, particularly if they knew that the guy had, had taught uh, or had been a teacher from wherever he came from. Um, and they would read some passages of the Old Testament, and then generally, the, the message that was given would be on those passages that they had just read. So they asked Paul, do you have anything for us, brother? Now, bad move on their part. That's bad strategy, okay? Smart strategy on Holy Spirit's part, all right? But they asked him, do you have anything to say? Now, the temptation in that moment could have been not to say anything. You ever been in that situation where the conversation is about maybe you and one other person or maybe you and a couple people and the conversation begins to turn and they know you're a believer and they know you have some crazy ideas about some things and they kind of, what do you think about that? Ever had that kind of experience? And what happens? What happens? Immediately you're like, I, uh, you, you know, should you say what you want to say? Should, you know, how hard do you deliver the gospel here? Do you want to take some of the edge off of the sharp truth so that everybody kind of agrees with it? You know, do you really want to or do you want to say, well, well, I believe, you know, I, I mean, you, you feel that tension? You ever, that, that may just be me. That might be me. You know, I feel that tension. You know, that conversation turns and I can, and they're like, Rick, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? I, I start to feel that. Paul could not have said anything. He, he could have said, no, nah, I'm good. And just sat there quietly. Paul wasn't stupid. He knew what would happen if, if he began telling them about Jesus. He knew there would be tension, there would be pushback, there would be hostility. He, he, he could have either said nothing or he could have been, you know, kind of taken the middle road and said, preach a gospel-less sermon, a Christless sermon. Preach about God. And kind of gotten around talking about Jesus. And they would have applauded him and they would have said, oh, that's a great message. He could have killed it with a Jewish sermon but he would have missed an opportunity to deliver a Christ-exalting, gospel-espounding Christian sermon. Instead, he speaks boldly. And we too, when we are in that situation, God would have us to speak boldly. God would not have us to dull that truth. God would have us to speak the gospel. We are to speak boldly, but our bold speech needs to have gospel substance. Our bold speeches have gospel substance, and this takes us to our third point. Gospel advancement requires a God-centered, Christ-exalting message. Gospel advancement requires a God-centered, Christ-exalting message. We're going to read verses 17 through 25. But before I do, I want you to notice something about the first part of Paul's sermon here. Notice the God-centeredness of it. Notice that God, who, who is the actor in all of these sentences? Who is the one that's doing all the acting? Who is it, the one, who is it that's doing the initiating grace? Notice the God-centeredness of it. Verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, 
He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And then after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And then he had him removed, and he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do, you suppose, I'm, yeah, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy, I am not worthy to untie. Why does Paul start with such a strong, God-centered push? I think it makes most sense that he understands that the Jews know that God is the center of all of ancient Jewish history. That he is the center of all of history. They know that God is the creator of the redemption story for all mankind. That he is the director. That God is the one who thought of it. That God is the one who ensured it. That God said that it would happen and it would happen. He is the one that will carry it out. That he is the one that will see it to its ultimate completion. And so Paul leverages the knowledge of these Jews and their, their knowledge of the finer details of the Old Testament and he reminds them of God's essential role in their history. And without God, they have no hope. They're doomed. They're without a Messiah. And he's capitalizing on what they know and where, where, where they're at in life. And he meets them with where they're at. He finds common ground with them. Uh, people today like to call this contextualization. Uh, we, when you say they're just meeting them, Paul's meeting them where they're at. Again, Paul knew where these Jews were at intellectually, spiritually, culturally, and he was able to deliver the gospel with maximum impact. How? By taking the gospel and connecting it with what they already knew, with where they were already at. When we share the gospel, it is to our benefit and to the benefit of those that we are sharing with to deliver the message in a way that they will most likely actually hear it. And as we're moving through Acts, you're going to see Paul do this quite often. He never changes the gospel. He never waters down the gospel. He never takes off the sharp edges of the gospel. But he does change his delivery of the gospel. If you believe that your delivery of the gospel always has to be hard, harsh, you're not going to find that in the scriptures. You're not going to find that there. His delivery to the Jews is different than his delivery to the pagans. In Acts 17, for example, Paul is walking around in Athens and he sees an inscription to an unknown God. And he uses that and he connects that to, the, to, to their idol, and he uses that as a segue into the gospel. In, in chapter 24, when he's speaking to Felix, or in Acts chapter 26, when he's speaking to King Agrippa, excuse me, Agrippa, he approaches each of those situations differently, but he always ends up delivering the gospel. So we start with where people are at, but we end, we always end with Jesus. Start with where people are at and always end with Jesus. And that's the third thing that we should notice about this sermon. Everything is leading to Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 26 and we'll go through verse 37. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been, given, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, just talking about Jesus, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. 
And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God, in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So again, it, it, Paul starts with God. He's, he's moving into Christ. But there's two things that I want you to see in this section particularly quickly. The first is the gospel. He lays out the gospel. Now, this sermon is, is everybody that I read on this, said it's most likely not a word-for-word verbatim of his sermon. Luke is bringing us the highlights of this message, okay? But if you look at verses 23 and 27, uh, there you see the need of a Savior to provide salvation. Why? Because we've all sinned, every single one of us. No one is perfect, not a single solitary one of us. No one is blameless. The Bible is clear. There isn't anything that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. So we need a Savior because we're not perfect. But the Savior must have lived the perfect, sinful life that we ourselves have not. So verse 28, Paul says there, there was no guilt worthy of death. And so Paul admits, there's no guilt in Jesus. He was perfect. He was blameless. And yet they put him to death. And he talks there about how the, everything that was written was fulfilled. There are, were at least 25 Old Testament prophecies that were specifically fulfilled in the death of Jesus. At least 25, specifically fulfilled in the death of Jesus. That's not including prophecies concerning his life, his birth, his resurrection, those things. Just strictly talking about his death. Those things were at least fulfilled. So when people say, you know, is there continuity between the two testaments? Absolutely. Can, can we believe the scriptures? Absolutely we can. So we need a Savior because we're sinners, we're not perfect. Jesus lived that perfect life that, that we were unable to live. And then verse 30 Paul speaks to his resurrection. He says, God raised him from the dead. There's actually three other verses where he does this again. Talking about Christ's resurrection and that many people witnessed him alive. And so Paul lays out the gospel to these people. He ends with Christ, he, he presents the gospel to them. And the second thing I want us to see is that Paul, like the other New Testament authors, reads the Old Testament as pointing to Jesus. And he sees the Old Testament in passages uh, pointing to Jesus, foreshadowing. Christ, in order to substantiate his claim that God has fulfilled his promises to their forefathers, he quotes three Old Testament passages. And he says that all of these point to Jesus as the Messiah. So again, Paul preaches Christ to the Jews. He doesn't dial it down. He doesn't back down. He represents Jesus as their only hope for salvation. He lifts Christ up as the climax of all redemptive history. And then after doing this, he comes into verse 38, and it's here that Paul begins to make his appeal to the people. Verse 38 and following, I'll read through the rest of it, the, the message in the rest of the chapter. But here Paul concludes with his appeal. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sin, through, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. They spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge for yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. People have two choices when they're presented with the gospel. They can either accept Christ they can accept the resurrected Christ. They can, they can choose to trust in Jesus, turn from their sin. They can realize, according to verse 39, that they, they can't do enough good. They, they can't obey all the law and still make it in. They've already sinned. Your only hope is to trust in Christ. And if that's you this morning, if you never believed, you never trusted, or maybe you have questions about that, I'd encourage you to come see myself or Pastor Jason or maybe the folks that you came with. The second are those who don't trust in Christ. Paul identifies those that do not trust in Christ in verse 41 as scoffers, those who doubt, those who reject. They spend an eternity in eternal torment, in a literal hell under the wrath of God. And God again says to you today, repent and believe. Part of our responsibilities now as believers is to go and tell others a God-centered, Christ-exalting message of hope. We are to go and tell. Each one of us. Will you go and tell this week? Will you do that? For some, it means going across the street, talking to your neighbor. For, the, for others of us, it may mean talking to a co-worker about Jesus. But the next time you have an opportunity to tell... Will you tell the gospel story? It's possible that someone, maybe you, you're sitting there this morning and for quite some time, or maybe even now, the Lord is beginning to stir within you a heart for missions, maybe even international mission work. If that's the case, I would, I would strongly encourage you to talk to those who are closest to you See if they think that that call may also be on you. I'd encourage you to pray about that. I'd encourage you also to come talk to myself or any of the other elders. That is a high calling. Don't quench that. If you believe King Jesus is calling you to the mission field, search that out, and if he is, go and tell. Go and tell. I found this stat just yesterday. 
I want to read it to you, and we'll close here in just a moment. It is estimated that of the 7.47 billion people alive in the world today, 3.15 billion of them live in the unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Almost half of this world does not ever heard the gospel. Almost half. Think about that. According to the Joshua Project, the vast majority of these least reached people groups, 95% of them live within the 1040 window. Most of us are familiar with that. 95% of them live there. And less than 10% of the missionary work is being done there. People are dying every second. They have never heard the gospel and they are entering into eternity, into damnation. And nobody's there. They slip off into darkness without Jesus, without ever even being presented with opportunity because nobody's, nobody's went, nobody spoke. Go and tell. Speak Jesus. Speak the gospel. Nobody. I, I like it where I'm at. That ought not be so, brothers and sisters. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Will you answer the call of the Spirit? Will you pray, Lord, here am I. Send me. Are you willing to go and tell people who have never heard? Now, I understand that some of us, but will you go and tell? Will you speak the next time you have opportunity? Will you do that this week? Who, who will you go to? Who will you speak to? I want us to have a high view of the gospel. I want us to have a high view of its power, the power of God for salvation to, to everyone who believes. Brothers and sisters, we have the good news. All we have to do is speak it. God will do the rest. God will do the work. We let him take care of that. But we've been called to speak it. Speak the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I would pray now that we would be a people who are marked as walking in Christ's likeness. Father, we are a blessed people, a people who have heard the gospel truth, someone somewhere shared it with us. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. We're thankful that you have shown us Jesus. Father, we know that you are a good and a just God. And Father, we know that you have given us a responsibility. Father, help us by your Spirit to carry that out. Help us to be a people who pray for your help when we need it. Father, may we reach the people that you have put us around so that you and you alone may be glorified in it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.